as I'd said, the, the original intention was to have our annual meeting today, and my uh, plan next week is to take about 20 minutes and, and teach a little briefly on what it means to be reformed so that we've got time for the meeting and the potluck. Um, again, events didn't allow that. The next passage in Matthew 26 has to do with the Lord's Supper. And we were not set to have the Lord's Supper today. And I just thought it would be the height of, of silliness to teach on the Lord's Supper and not have the Lord's Supper. So I thought, what can I do? And I just wanted to go back and, and talk about faith. Uh, faith is absolutely foundational to what we have in Christ. We know that. That's not a new message for most people. Um, and yet it's so little understood, it's so often misunderstood, and it, it gets uh, combined with other things that it has no business being combined with. Faith is the heart of biblical worship. It's the foundation for our salvation. It's the basis of our peace with God. It's the, the means by which we are sanctified and glorified and by which we are justified. So I want to think, just talk with you briefly this morning about faith. Here's the roadmap. Uh, we're going to look at how faith receives Christ. Uh, we're going to talk about how faith takes in all of Christ. Then how faith brings perfect righteousness. Faith alone brings perfect righteousness. And finally, how faith motivates us to action. So let me pray. And then if you turn to John chapter 1 with me. We will begin. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the precious truths of your word. We would not have known these things without your scriptures. We only know the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is. We only know of your love and compassion and graciousness and mercy because of your word. And so as we come this morning, have mercy on us. Have pity on our dull ears and our dim eyes. Help us to see the faith that you give and the perfections of it in a way we never have before. That we would trust you more, know you better, and experience your peace to a much greater degree. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. In the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses form a, a, a prologue, an introduction, where we are introduced to the eternal word of God, and then we learn that the word became flesh and is Jesus Christ. Now, immediately before that statement in verse 14, in verse 9, we see this, there was the true light, speaking of Jesus, there was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, <coughs> excuse me, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God.
When I came to Christ in the 1970s, one of the most common terms used for becoming a Christian was receiving Christ. Come forward to the altar and pray to receive Christ. Have you received Christ? Yes, I've received Christ. We urge people to receive Christ. Those who were telling us that never explained how you receive Christ. And for those who are like me, we never asked, but how do I do that? It was all kind of a, of a mystery. I know how to receive a phone call and receive a text and receive a gift, but how do you receive a person who is eternal and invisible? Well, John 1.12 is the, the key to that mystery, which actually isn't mystery, mysterious at all. If we just reorder the phrases a little bit, it still makes perfect sense. But as many as received him, even to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How is it that we receive Christ? We receive Christ by believing in his name. If you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, then in the language of John 1.12, you have received him. Let's talk about that verb, believe, for a moment. It's important because it, it, it runs all the way through the passages we're looking this morning. The concept does. And it, it is uh, used many, many times in the New Testament. This verb is in the present tense and active voice. And I know that that means everything to you. Being in the present tense and the active voice means that it is an ongoing, continual faith. It's not sporadic. It's not every once in a while. It's not a moment in history. It's something that is ongoing. Uh, What's more, uh, John actually uses it as a participle here, and I'm sure that that means even more to most of you. But what that means is instead of those who believe, it's those believing in his name is the way that a clearer translation would be. Those who believe in his name is perfectly accurate, of course. But you see, when you, we use the word believe, it could be for a moment or for a lifetime. I believe I'll take a drink of water. That's not continual. I believe Jesus has saved me for all eternity. That's continual. So it's important to understand that more than half the time the New Testament uses the verb believe, it's an ongoing, continuous faith. It's not sporadic, it's present. It's not dormant, it's active. And this faith brings us into a relationship with Christ. But what kind of a relationship is it? Uh, Turn just a few more chapters to John chapter 6. And I'll have you go to verse 26 by way of background in the first few verses of John chapter 6. Jesus up in Galilee goes up on a mountain and he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. Miraculously multiplying bread and fish so that they can eat. The people are so impressed by this, impressed by this that they want to make him king by force. Who wouldn't want a king that just gave you every desire? 
he escapes them. He goes up on a mountain. Later on, his disciples go rowing across the Sea of Galilee. They get caught in a storm. Jesus comes walking on the water. He gets in the boat. He calms the storm. And then the next day comes. And the next day, these people that he fed, many of them had followed him around the Sea of Galilee to the city of Capernaum where he was living. They wanted to know how he got there. And Jesus, in verse 26, just kind of nails them right between the eyes. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're, you're just pursuing another momentary act of satisfaction. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the son, the, on him, God the Father set his seal. They said to him, what should we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe, ongoing, continual belief, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Not a one-time sporadic event, not something that's only in the past, but an ongoing faith. That's the work that God requires. In a sense, in, in the way we handle words today, you could put quotes around that work. This is the work of God. Because it's not really work at all. Well, in answer to this, they want some proof to Jesus, from Jesus. So they said to him, well, what then do you do for a sign? That we may see and believe you what... Miracle, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Their assumption is that the he there is Moses. And we know that because of Jesus' response. Jesus then said to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in, the, in Exodus do we see that Moses gave them bread. God says to Moses in Exodus, I will give them bread. And Moses then goes on to tell the people, Yahweh will give you bread. But they said, Moses gave us bread and that's why we listened to him. So they were wrong on that. The bread of heaven is that which comes down or the bread of God, rather, is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Keep giving us this bread. We're not unpacking John 6 in detail, but hopefully it's clear to you that these people are just focused on the food. You fed us yesterday, feed us again today. No, you need to be working for something that doesn't perish. You need to work for something that endures well, what sign do you perform that we should believe you? Hey, we have an idea. Give us bread. No, not going to do that. God gives the bread from heaven. Okay, keep giving us that bread. I think that there's an important statement in verse 27. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. When he talks about the food that perishes, 
Jesus is not talking about a loaf of bread that sits on your shelf and then eventually gets moldy. He's talking about food that you eat and it perishes in you eating it. It's no longer bread. In not very long, it's no longer bread. It goes into your body, you digest it, your body sends some of the good stuff there and some of the good stuff there, and it sends the rest to the disposal department. And it perishes. And we have to eat again. Why? Because the food we ate this morning is in the act of perishing right now, and we need more. Instead, he says, there is eternal food which will never perish, which means you don't need to eat it over and over and over again. You don't need to get saved over and over and over again. There are some traditions where you could talk to people who go to those churches, to those denominations, and and they will say to you, oh, I've received Christ a dozen times. I got saved in 1979, and then I got saved in 1983, and I got saved in 1986, and they're treating Jesus like bread that perishes. Jesus is not bread that perishes. Well, how do we eat the bread of heaven? They said to him, verse 34, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me, ongoing, continual faith, will never thirst. We eat of the bread of life, Christ, by believing. We come to him by believing. In John 1.12, we receive Christ. How do we receive him? By believing in his name. How do we come to him in Romans 8.35? How do, no. Six, John 6.35, how, how do we come to him? We believe in him. All of those actions with the Lord Jesus comes down to that act of faith and the existence of ongoing, consistent, continual faith. That continual faith has taken in all of Christ. It brings an end to all spiritual hunger. It doesn't bring an end to our longing to be right with God. It doesn't bring an end to loneliness. It doesn't solve every emotional need that we have or every physical need that we have or every social need that we have, but it solves every spiritual need that we have. We don't need more of him. He has already given us his fullness. There is no more of him to give And we couldn't hold it if he did. He's already given us the fullness of who he is. So by faith we receive Christ. By faith we take in all of Christ. We take in the whole Christ. And he gives us eternal life that never perishes. And we don't ever have to worry about it perishing. It won't rot. It won't go bad. But faith does more. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 4. We'll see that faith equals righteousness. Sinners have a lot of problems. Sinners have many problems. One of those problems is that God requires perfect righteousness from his creation. But we being sinners by nature are unable to live in righteousness. Even though we know that we should. 
Now, how do we know what righteousness is? <coughs> how do we know what God requires? Well, we can say that he's given us his word, and that's true. The Ten Commandments is a pretty good summary of the righteous requirements of God, the righteous requirements of the law. But you know, for most of human history, most of human beings have had zero access to the scriptures. It's really only been in the last uh, 100, 150 years that a flood of translation work has taken place into smaller languages. Translations were done in English and Spanish and German and, and so on, but into those small tribal languages in Africa and Papua New Guinea, it's, it's in recent decades. Not centuries ago, but in decades ago. If I remember correctly, uh, Penny had, had mentioned one time that the... the the kind of the long-lasting Chinese translation was from the early 1900s, not before. So how do people know the righteous requirement of God? Well, the Ten Commandments breaks into two pieces. The first four deal with man's relationship with God. God alone is God. Don't worship images. Don't take his name in vain. And rest in him. Romans chapter 1 says that God has given enough evidence in creation of God's divine power and eternal nature that people who refuse to worship him are without excuse. So right there, there is within the human conscience and the, the human mind, the awareness that there is a God and he's not a tree, he's not a rock, he's not an animal, he's not something we can make with human hands. And they're without excuse when they worship those things. The last six of the Ten Commandments address moral behavior. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And it's good that they're laid out in Scripture. But we don't need them laid out in Scripture. We know those things. Those of us who have children know that at somewhere between 18 months and 2 years old... They lied to us. They looked up at us with that innocent little face and those big, round, soft eyes, and they just lied right to our face. And when we caught them in the lie, because it was never a smart lie, was it? Right? <laughs> when they lied to us, what did they do when we caught them? Did they look confused? No, they looked ashamed. They knew that they were caught. So at a very young age, we have built within the conscience God has given us an awareness of these things. We know that we don't fulfill his righteous requirements. It's no good saying I keep most of them. It's no good saying I don't break them very often. The Bible says if you violate one law of God one time, you are a lawbreaker by nature. So that's the problem. God requires perfect righteousness. But we are unable to meet his requirements. What's the answer? Praise God for Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, uh, he's speaking specifically about Jews here, but it applies all around. What shall then we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified, made right with God by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Why? Why? Because what does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. I want you to notice something. It doesn't say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as a righteous work. It was counted to him as righteousness itself. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. Anybody who has worked for a wage knows this. It's actually illegal to withhold somebody's wage from them. Why? Because they've earned it. They have a right to it. But, Paul says, to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not his faith is counted as a righteous work. His faith is counted as righteousness. That's really remarkable. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man or the woman whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Don't miss the fact that this man or woman has lawless deeds and sins. He doesn't say how blessed is the man who's committed no lawless deeds. How blessed is the man who has never committed a sin. He said, how blessed is the man whose lawless deeds God will not take into account. How blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Whose sins have been covered. That's remarkable. It's not that faith is counted as a righteous work along with other things that we do. I believe in God. I go to church. Um, I read my Bible. I'm nice to people. I use cruise control and drive the speed limit. All those righteous things we do. And if you do enough righteous things, they all add up to righteousness. Right? A big pile of righteous works adds up to righteousness. In the same way that a big pile of completed assignments adds up to a degree. The degree is not the homework. The homework is not the degree. You do all of those individual assignments, and then they said, you've completed it. Here's your degree. It's not that God says faith is a righteous work and you add it up with all of the other righteous works and when you have enough, here's your righteousness. It's that faith is righteousness. Faith is righteousness. There's no point in trying to earn righteousness when we've already been judged to be unrighteous. No amount of good works can change our nature But God can change our nature. But what's fascinating to me is before he begins to change our nature, he changes our status. I've used this illustration before. It's as though the moment we received him, he pressed pause on time. He took us forward to the day of judgment. 
and he declared us at the end of our life to be perfectly righteous before him. Then he took us back to that moment we had received him and hit play again. And now we have to live this life out. Looking at our lives and saying, I I failed there. I sinned there. I violated that. I did that knowingly. I didn't even know I was sinning there. And for some of us in the room, at least, we know what it's like to have the devil sit on our shoulder tapping at us and saying, see, you're not righteous. You don't act righteously. You don't live righteously. You're not really a good person at all, are you? And he's trying to convince us that righteousness comes from a pile of righteous deeds, and it never does. It's the declaration of God as to our state before him. Sanctification is the work of the spirit where he transforms our lives so that at the end of that process, our lives match his declaration. So will we be righteous in fact one day? Yes. And by the same way that we're declared righteous, by faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. Justification is not for sale, not at any price. You can't buy it. It's beyond your means. But it can be completely yours when you have ongoing, or it is completely yours when you have ongoing continual faith in the God who justifies the ungodly. If you'll turn with me back to Matthew chapter 9, our our last passage has to do with faith motivating action. Genuine faith motivates action. There's a precious story told in just three verses. Beginning at verse 20, behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. (coughs) For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be saved from this. But Jesus turned, but Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage, your faith has saved you. At once the woman was saved from her hemorrhage. He doesn't say your attitude has saved you. He doesn't say touching my robe has saved you. He says your faith has saved you. Faith wasn't mentioned before. It's illustrated, it's demonstrated, but it's not mentioned. She says to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be saved. That's a, an expression of faith. That's faith being voiced. But then she doesn't sit there and say, and that's enough. Now I should be healed. I believe that if I come up and touch the hem of Jesus' robe, I will be healed, and so why am I not healed? Well, because you haven't touched the hem of his robe. Genuine faith motivates us to action. And so she goes out and she finds Jesus. She moves through the crowd, which was a a risky thing for her to do. 
being being delicate for the for the sake of little ears the old testament law put restrictions on women during certain times this had continued for 12 years she was not allowed around people and if people had realized who she was and, and what was going on with her, they would have turned on her. And she runs the risk of that. She's motivated by her faith to come up and touch Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Daughter, take courage. Your faith has saved you. James explains this in James chapter 2. He says, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, James is not saying that we need to be saved by faith plus works. That we need to have acts of faith or we need to have faith and then we need to have good works. And those two things combined bring salvation. He's saying genuine faith motivates works. And if what we say is faith doesn't motivate action, it isn't faith at all. And then he gives us a very simple illustration of that. There's nothing complicated to it. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What use are your words? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. He's not saying faith is propped up by works. He's not saying faith is joined to works. He's saying genuine, ongoing, continual biblical faith motivates us to act according to what we believe. In the, the ministry that I do in jails, I regularly encounter men who insist that they're Christians. But whatever faith they have never motivates them to godliness. It doesn't motivate them to loathe their sin or confess it or to hate it. It doesn't motivate them to put it away. It doesn't motivate them to be humble. They're, they're generally the proudest men around the table when I do Bible studies in jail. They're just completely at peace. Even though the faith that they have has never motivated any kind of a change. 2 Timothy 3.5 describes people like that as having a form of godliness, but having denied its power, that is the power to transform our lives. And Paul says to Timothy, keep away from such men as those. Don't Believe their claim to be Christians. Don't welcome them into the fellowship. Pray for them and share Christ with them and keep preaching the gospel to them. Was this woman's faith genuine? Yes. How do we know? Because it motivated her to action. She wasn't saved by the action. She wasn't healed by the action. She was healed by the faith she expressed. But that faith wasn't just expressed in words, it was expressed in what she did. 
So I want to bring this, this home by asking you four questions. They're in the first person, so you can just repeat it in your mind, repeat it in your heart. Four questions based on these four passages. First, what sort of faith do I have this morning? Is it ongoing and continual? What sort of faith do I have this morning? Is it ongoing and continual? I've discovered over the years that my faith is stubborn. It doesn't want to quit. It won't quit. And there, I, I will just honestly admit to you, there have been times it would have been easier not to have faith in Jesus Christ, not to believe what I believe. It'd be easier just to make the compromise, to enjoy the moment of pleasure, to say what I thought, to do what I wanted. But there was always that, that living faith within me, the bread of God, that simply would not let me do that. We had a good friend at our, our church in California, and he, he had it clear in his head, he had it okay in his mind that he could go to a local casino and play blackjack once in a while. And, and he said to me one day, but it's okay. I asked the Holy Spirit to stay outside. And I said, you realize that the Holy Spirit doesn't stay outside. You mean the spirit sees what I see? Yeah. Oh, no. That's why theology is important, by the way. That's why sound teaching is important. He had this idea that he could do that because he, in previous places, had just been poorly taught. So is my faith ongoing and continual? Not am I happy all the time. Not am I confident in everything that I do. Not do I have every assurance there is. But is my faith stubborn? Second question, what kind of faith do I have this morning? Have I taken in all of Christ so that I am permanently nourished by him? There are many who just pursue a constant experience of emotion, and their faith is really described as an emotional experience. And when and if those emotions die down, when they lose that, they will describe themselves as being in a spiritual crisis or a famine or a drought. And it sounds so spiritual, it, it does, and it's heartfelt. Somebody says to you, would you pray for me? I'm just in a drought right now. But if you press them, if you ask them, what do you mean? You might hear them say, I'm just not feeling what I used to feel. If that happens to you, have them go to the Psalms. Have them go to the places where David is afraid or guilty or ashamed or uneasy or anxious about the wicked. In most of those psalms, he ends the psalm with absolute strong faith in God, but that doesn't mean he's happy. It means he's settled, and he's sure about who his God is. Third, what kind of faith do I have this morning? Do I happily rest in God's justification? This is a hard one. I want to be a better man. I want to do better. 
I want to be better. And perhaps you want me to be better too. And perhaps you want to do better and be better. But that doesn't mean God is saying you're not acceptable to me until you do better. And you are better. Being justified by faith means being fully accepted by God. Not because of who I am, but as I am in Christ, in the knowledge that he now is relentlessly transforming me. And that in his time, my state of being declared righteous and my practical life and actions will agree. By his power. Not by my power, but by his power. This is so important because I think... In my view, the greatest area of struggle struggle for Christians is whether or not God has actually accepted them. And for those of us who have been in the Lord for a long time, we so often say, but I should be farther along than I am today. I should be beyond that issue today. I should know more than I know. And we put all of these measurements and judgments on us, partly because Our sin nature is self-loathing and partly because there's an enemy of our souls who wants us to measure everything by, by distinct acts and deeds and to not at all think about God's declaration, which is once and for all and eternal. There is absolutely no contradiction for a Christian saying, I am right with my God and I am loathsome in my soul. Because God is in the process of transforming us. That's why we come to him in confession every week. Not to say, gee, I can't remember the last time I sinned. But to say, I sinned so often I can't even count them all. But I've been forgiven and I gladly lay those things down because I've been forgiven. And God's love is magnified. And finally, what kind of faith do I have this morning? Does it motivate me to action? Joel Beakey is a Presbyterian uh, seminary president. I found a quote from him that says, Real faith is a living faith that has legs, that sits up and walks, and gets up and moves in obedience to God. Living faith motivates us and moves us to action. Does your faith have legs? Does it motivate you to obedience, to confession? Does it motivate you to love? So I'll say this. Some of you are saying, yes, my faith does. And some of you are saying, I have no idea. So I'll say this. If your faith is in Christ, I'll just remind you that you're here. You came to be taught, you came to sing, you came to pray, you came to fellowship, you came to be nourished in the word. That is something that faith has motivated you to do. We don't do this as a concert. We don't do this as a feel-good motivational speech. We gather together to worship our God and to submit ourselves to his word, knowing that his word not only teaches but rebukes us. And tells us we're wrong. And then it corrects us and shows us how to live rightly. And then it trains us, I think perhaps so that we don't have to be rebuked again.
it's it's a little bit like going to the doctor for shots. We know that we ought to do it, but it's going to sting a little. We're motivated to do this by faith. Is there something else your faith would move you to do? Maybe not. There's not a list. You don't have to work down a checklist. My point is just to say your faith is already motivating you to action. Is there more? Is there more? Father, we give you thanks for your gracious and kind love to us. We thank you for the gift of righteousness in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the wonder of your love and your compassion and your graciousness. We tend to think in terms of black and white and we think that either we are righteous because we are good or we are unrighteous because we are not good. And you found a way for us to be declared righteous even though we are still in a sinning state. And so we don't, we don't even measure another believer by their good works. We measure them by their faith and whether it's ongoing and whether it continues and persists, even through hard times, even through the questions. So Lord, grant us the favor of eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that believe. Let us really grasp this truth with both hands. We've just skimmed through some wonderful places in your word. So much more could have been brought out. And Lord, we trust that you will draw us back to those things and bring out those truths and feed us. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ is the bread that never perishes, but endures to eternal life. And we thank you.